Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zach McCulley, and today I'm joined by Dr. Stephen Nichols, who is the president of Reformation Bible College and chief academic officer for Ligonier. And we're going to discuss his new book. It's releasing this March with Crossway. It's titled R.C. Sproul, A Life. And this biography, it comes just three, a little over three years since R.C.'s pass into glory, and, and it's written by one of his dearest friends, Dr. Nichols, thank you so much for writing this book, and thanks for joining us here today. My pleasure. Looking forward to this time together with you. Great. Well, this book, it was such a joy to read, and we're really looking forward to to hearing about the life and ministry of R.C. Sproul. But perhaps before we do that, could you tell us some about your own Christian and academic background and and how it is that you came to know R.C. and write this book? Mm. Well, uh, as kind of you to say it, it's a joy to read, I, I can tell you it was a real joy to write, that's for sure. Um, my, my sort of world is church history. I love church history. I love connecting saints of today with saints of the past. Um, church history is really our family history when you think about it. And um, I've spent m- most of my time teaching in college and also just writing books on church history. I currently serve at Ligonier Ministries, which we'll get into, I'm sure. This is the ministry founded by Dr. Sproul, and serve at the college he founded, uh, Reformation Bible College. It was really back, uh, specifically with Dr. Sproul, it was really back in 2010 when I sort of met him. I'd met him way back in college at one of those book signings, you know, at a, at a conference. <laughs> Uh, but it was 2010, uh, invited down here for a conference to Central Florida here. And first time I was able to spend time with Dr. Sproul and Vesta and just get to know Ligonier. And it's really uh, one of the singular joys of my life uh, to have been able to spend time with him in what turned out to be the twilight years of his life. And over that time and, and after his passing to um, to write his biography, just to true privilege and a blessing for me and um, truly grateful for it. Well, many of our listeners know, know of R.C. Sproul, perhaps have, have read his books or listened to his sermons and lectures, but maybe some folks don't know much about him. So why don't we begin by, by having you tell us who R.C. Sproul was and why people today ought to be aware of his life and also his contribution to the church. Sure. So Dr. Sproul, uh, probably best known for founding Ligonier Ministries, which in August of this year turns 50 years old. So Ligonier was founded back in 1971. It's called Ligonier because it was in the little town of Stallstown, Pennsylvania. And I'm telling you, this town is so small, they don't even have a single traffic light uh, at the intersection in town. (laughs) This is rural Western Pennsylvania 
in the Allegheny Mountains at the foothills of the vast Appalachian Mountain Range. And that whole area is called the Ligonier Valley, and the nearby town is Ligonier. So in 1971, he opened the doors for the Ligonier Valley Study Center, and it was a place where he and other teachers could meet with students and where students could come of all ages, really, with all sorts of questions. And and if we travel back in time, uh, we recognize that 1971 was a tumultuous, turbulent moment in American culture. The hippie revolution, the sex revolution... Uh, there was the, the Vietnam War protest. There was, at the end of the 60s, the, the, the Democratic Convention riots in, in Chicago. This was a tumultuous time. Liberalism was, was amok in the church. And into this, Dr. Sproul started the study center and just became a faithful teacher. Eventually, books would come out of this, Holiness of God, Chosen by God. Uh, and then the radio program, uh, Renewing Your Mind, which so many have listened to, and really just a mountain of teaching series on all sorts of subjects uh, also came out of that. So so that's R.C. Uh, he was born in 1939. Uh, he was born in Pleasant Hills, which is about 10 miles away from the very heart and center of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania downtown Pittsburgh, and uh, he passed away in December of 2017, uh, which poetically, uh, for Dr. Sproul, that was the 500th anniversary year of the Protestant Reformation. So he, he always was one for the dramatic. Um, so, so we even have that uh, with him. But uh, yeah, that's in brief, uh, our friend, Dr. Sproul. And, and, you know, for as much of an impact as R.C. had on the church and, and also the spread of, of Reformed theology through his adult ministry, there's still much to be said of, of the providence of, of God evident in his life, even, even as a boy. Um, you have a lot of fascinating things to say about his childhood. One of those is about his family moving to a Presbyterian church. It was a liberal church, and yet... It, it left quite an impression on him for, for how he would think about liturgy later in life. And you say, in a way, joining the Presbyterian Church, it was a lot like coming home for the Sproul family in, in light of their history. What was the significance of this move? So Dr. Sproul loved to tell the story that John Knox, who's really the founder of Presbyterianism, this is going back to the Scottish Reformation, that the very first minister that John Knox ordained was one Robert Campbell Sproul, R.C. Sproul. And so uh, Dr. Sproul liked to trace his family lineage back to County Donegal in Ireland. And uh, after, after Knox ordained this figure, R.C. Sproul, Knox sent him to Ireland to take Presbyterianism there. And, and from that area, County Donegal, are R.C.'s ancestors. They settled as much of the Scotch-Irish did there along western Pennsylvania. And now his father, an R.C. Sproul, uh, was an accountant, had an accounting firm downtown Pittsburgh. And they lived, as I mentioned, in Pleasant Hills, which is this delightful little neighborhood uh, just south of the city on the mountain there, looking down over Pittsburgh. And 
literally just a few doors away from their house when when RC's dad got back from the war uh there opened up Pleasant Hills Presbyterian Church and uh, that's that's where RC's dad moved his family to and that was uh RC's church through his childhood's where RC was ordained and it's also where RC and Vesta got married in 1960 so an important church uh, in the life of RC. Yeah. And another important moment in these early years it involved his dad. Now, RC's father, he, he remembered him as an honorable man, a gracious man, and he was ill and he died while RC was in high school. What did this experience mean to him, particularly at a time when, when faith, the faith of his father, it wasn't, it wasn't one that he shared at the time. Well, R.C. writes about this, and I put it in the book, and he can say it much better than I, but it had a tremendous impact on him. Um, he was a teenager. His dad was an honorable man. His dad was, was well past the draft age, but he was the, sat on the draft board for Pittsburgh, and here he was sending all these young men to war, and he just felt compelled to go. So so he volunteered and went in the army as an accountant. Uh, R.C. liked to joke that his dad joked that he flew a desk in the war. Um, but he loved his dad. And when R.C. was a teenager, his dad had a, a stroke, severely debilitating him. R.C. would have to carry him, a uh, fireman style, uh, to the dinner table. And then from the dinner table to his chair and from his reading chair to his bed. And R.C. talks about how this just really was an impact on him. And then his father passed. And um, again, R.C. just writes about it with, with, with um, such a vivid way of describing it. I think the impact is this. It, it made R.C. as a teenager mindful of the meaning of eternity. So many of us, when we're young, we're going to live forever, right? And and we don't have a proper perspective on time and eternity. And I think that moment in R.C. gave him a passion that just fueled his energies in his life to come, that he knew life was temporary and fleeting. And as he's, you know, this column he has in Table Talk, the magazine of Ligonier, the devotional magazine, it's entitled Right Now Counts Forever. I think some of that passion was born in R.C. with the passing of his father. Yeah. Well, R.C. graduates high school and he, and he ends up turning down a scholarship to play baseball at the University of Pittsburgh. And, and he's set to attend college in New Wilmington, Pennsylvania. And it was during this time that, again, we see quite, quite the providential mercy of God now awakening R.C. to the true state of his soul. Can you tell us how R.C. was converted? Yeah, in a very unexpected, surprising way. And as R.C. says, he's the only person in church history. Well, I think he said he's likely the only person in church history. I think it's safe to remove the likely. Uh, but he was, he was converted by Ecclesiastes 11.3. Now, my hunch is most people don't know what that verse is, and they're going to have to go look it up. And when you do, it's, it's uh, you know, when a tree falls, 
basically, wherever it falls, there it will lie, is what the text says. And here's the context. R.C.'s a freshman. He's at the college you mentioned, Westminster College. He's there on an athletic scholarship. It's early in the semester, so it's September of 1957. He's going to go over to Youngstown, Ohio, because over there they don't check IDs at the bars. But on his on his way to the car, he realizes he's, he's out of cigarettes. So he goes back into the dorm lobby and plops quarter into the cigarette machine to get his pack of lucky strikes. And as he's doing this, he gets summoned by an upperclassman who's also one of the stars on the football team. He gets summoned over to him. And so, of course, R.C.'s going to go. And he walks over to the guy, and the guys, two of them are sitting there at a table, and they're sitting over an open Bible. And, our, and they say to R.C., hey, we're having a Bible study, and we're looking at this verse, and it's Ecclesiastes 11.3. And they read it to R.C., and R.C. says, at that moment, he was convicted of a sin. He saw himself as a dead, fallen tree rotting in the woods. He forgets about the trip to Youngstown. He goes up to his dorm, spends time in prayer wrestling with God, seeking the mercy of God. And sometime in the early hours of the morning, um, he's converted. Uh, so there you have it, uh, converted by Ecclesiastes eleven three. <laughs> and and then about a year after his conversion, he has this other experience that this seems to mark the beginning of of his understanding of the majesty of God. Can you tell us what happened that midnight uh, at the campus chapel? Yeah, absolutely, and it, it's. Again, he tells it so much better. It's in the opening pages of The Holiness of God, the classic book he wrote. But he he talks about being compelled to leave his dorm room. And it had snowed that day. And as the cooler temperatures came in, there's that thin crust of ice over the snow. And so as he makes his way from his dorm room to the chapel, you can hear the crunch of the snow under his feet. And he speaks of how the clock tower there on the campus, that the the arms fully align in an upright position and then start chiming 12. So it's, it's very dramatically told. He goes through the oaken doors of this, uh, under a Gothic arch of the chapel there on the campus. And he walks through the nave and comes right down to the chancel. And he just has what he writes of as a second conversion to the holiness of God. And, uh, you know, this is early in his Christian life. And this is early in his uh, life as, a, as a, again, still in college. Uh, but it becomes what will be his lifelong passion. And that is to teach and defend and proclaim the holiness of God. Um, and you see it right there uh, in his uh, in this college experience and in this moment. He was gripped uh, by the holiness of God. Yeah, it's a really well well told story um, there. And well, R.C. he marries his wife Vesta in 1960, graduates college, and then begins formal training for ministry the next year. And and here he studies under Dr. John Gerstner. And Dr. Gerstner was something of a lifeline for R.C. 
what impact did he have on RC as a thinker and a theologian going forward? I think it was threefold. Uh, one is RC learned from Gershner that even if everyone around you is compromising, that doesn't matter. Your duty is to stand fast and proclaim the truth. So Gershner was uh, a lone voice in a liberal seminary, but he was faithful to the task. And so R.C. learned that from Gershner. Uh, Secondly, he learned, he liked to refer to Gershner as having a bear trap mind. And um, I think R.C. had a bear trap mind. (laughs) I think most things that he he looked at and read stuck in there somewhere. And uh, he could just sort of you know, thumb through the files and pull it out uh, when needed. Um, but that that just tenacious mind that sought truth, held on to truth, uh, that that's an example uh, for for RC. And then the content, you know, you look at what Gershner uh, was about. He was about recovering those great truths of the Reformed classical tradition, those truths of orthodoxy. So Gershner had clearly one foot in the past as he was absorbed in the writings and thinking of the Augustans and the Calvins and the Jonathan Edwards of the past, but also one foot in the present in serving the church. And that was very much R.C. He, he saw himself on the shoulders of giants and was very happy uh, to, to be in debt to those who've gone before him. And to simply then bring forth those riches and that deposit, that rich deposit of the Reformed classical tradition uh, to the to the contemporary church. So Gershner was a lifeline and was a significant example and a dear mentor for RC. That's that's that is for certain. And it would be Gerstner who would write his letter of recommendation to then study at the Free University of Amsterdam upon his graduation from seminary. And then there was just a, a whirlwind of, of, of changes in his life um, as he's changing study plans, picking up new teaching opportunities. He begins pastoring at a PCUSA church in, in 1969. Did he and Gerstner, did they have any interaction as, as he contemplated the move to the PCA? Oh, yes. Uh, in fact, it, it was one of those areas where um, there they, they were not on the same page with each other. And so RC was of a mind to move his credentials. This is, this is in the mid seventies. Now they're in the same presbytery, uh, up there, uh, in Pittsburgh and RC, um, because of things that were happening, just felt the pressure, the personal pressure that he could no longer be in the, in the U S well becomes the USA PCUSA and moves his credentials to the newly formed PCA. But Gershner um, kept his credentials in. And so that was that was a point where they were not on the same page, but they still respected each other f- uh, and their reasons, Gershner's reason for staying and RC's reason for leaving. And so they were able to navigate that uh, with a mutual respect for each other. And R.C. would remain in the PCA the rest of his life. And it, it was around the time of this change, well, really a f- few years before that, that, that Ligonier ministry really began to take shape. And it was doing so around some really important 
really fundamentally Christian issues. Inerrancy is a big one. Maybe you can share some with us about R.C.'s understanding of the Bible's self-testimony and how he argued for the truthfulness of the scriptures. So he goes back to the argument that was put forth by the Princetonians. This is Warfield, uh, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, B.B. Warfield, and A.A. Hodge, who's the son of Charles Hodge, and also with J. Gresham Machen, who would sort of pick up the torch. But Warfield's argument was a pretty simple one, that once you have inspiration, then you have inerrancy. If the Bible is the Word of God, then it is true. And that is the basic argument R.C. used for inerrancy. Now, he'd also have other elements to it. He would talk about Jesus's testimony to the reliability of Scripture. He was very quick to talk about external corroboration and external verification of the reliability and authority of Scripture. But this was a crucial doctrine, and he saw it really at the base of liberalism. Once you move off of the authority and reliability of Scripture, it's like a domino chain, and those dominoes, the other doctrines, are going to fall in the wrong direction, and that's what happened to liberalism. So in the early 1970s, he convened a conference at Ligonier on the subject of inerrancy. And he had people there, J.I. Packer, who was just a young person at the time, not all that well known. And this is before he even wrote Knowing God. Um, he had written a book called Fundamentalism in the Word of God. He had a, a young John Frame was there, and a faculty member also at Westminster, Peter Jones, was there. Uh, John Warwick Montgomery was there. And they had this conference on inerrancy. And out of that, R.C. wrote what was called the Ligonier Statement on Inerrancy. Well, this mushroomed and developed and more people got involved, James Montgomery Boyce. And in 1978, they formed the ICBI, the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy, and published the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy. But the genesis of that goes back to the efforts of R.C. and the work there at the Ligonier Valley Study Center. So it's just a fascinating moment in church history and how God used R.C. and this really crucial doctrine um, and this really crucial document of the Chicago Statement. And going back to the ministry of, of Ligonier, R.C., he, he teaches at RTS in Jackson in Orlando beginning in 1980. And then in 1984, he moves Ligonier Ministries down to Central Florida, where it is today. And then the following four years, he publishes four books, The Holiness of God, Chosen by God, One Holy Passion, and Pleasing God. Talk to us about the impact these books have had on readers, and maybe you could give us a sense of, of what R.C. thought of these books himself, maybe in terms of, of their importance. Yeah, that's great. Uh, great, great insight here, Zach, and great question. And you know, you gotta you gotta think about this. He's running a full time. He's got two full time jobs. He's running a, a very growing ministry, Ligonier Ministries, and he's a full time seminary professor at in Jackson, Mississippi, for Reformed Theological Seminary. The organization and his family is moving a thousand miles from Western PA to Central Florida. And on top of that, he's pumping out these books that 
end up really being classic texts, especially in the case of the first two you mentioned, holiness of God and chosen by God. And many people who know R.C. come to know him through these two books. And I think as church history moves on, uh, these two books will emerge as classics in the Christian tradition. But those four books, to me, show quite a run of what R.C. was up to. So, of course, Holiness God just stresses what R.C. said, that American culture, American church, well, just culture and just the church, have a far too casual view of who God is. And we need to learn what the Bible says about who God is. And we are confronted with a holy God as we read the Bible. He loved the text of Uzzah and um, the story of Uzzah, you know, who, who tries to keep the ark from touching the ground because, as R.C. says, well-meaning Uzzah, well-intentioned Uzzah thought his hand was more clean than the dirt. And he struck dead by God. And then Isaiah chapter 6, of course, and here's the prophet Isaiah, uh, undone when he's confronted with the holiness of God. So it's a powerful book, palpable book. He follows that up with writing Chosen by God, which is a book on the sovereignty of God. Then he writes the book Loving God, which now moves into our relationship with God. And then he writes a book on sanctification, which he calls Pleasing God. And so now he we go from being confronted by a holy God and being saved by the substitutionary work of Christ on our behalf, our our only substitute who can deliver us from the wrath of God and enable us to stand before a holy God, now we grow in holiness in the Christian life and sanctification. And so those those four books, and, and when I take a step back and see all that he's doing, and he writes those books, and he writes them, you know, boom, 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 rapid fire succession, uh, it's impressive, um, and uh, really, it emerges as quite a gift uh, to the church. These books, in in addition to the doctrine of God, these these four books featuring different aspects of that doctrine, as you say, um, RC was also keen on the doctrine of justification and the importance of imputation, which would undergird sola fide. Two issues crop up surrounding this doctrine the evangelicals and Catholics together, and then also the new perspective on Paul. Why wasn't R.C. in favor of ECT? And and maybe also, what, what did he have to say about the new perspective not long after? Yeah, ECT was, uh, as R.C. talks about it, it was the most difficult moment in his life. And it is because this doctrinal controversy also cost him friendships that were decades old. And those two friendships were with Chuck Colson, who he first met back in the mid-70s, and then um, with J.I. Packer. I mentioned him earlier with their work together on inerrancy. But Colson and a figure named John Richard Niehaus were the authors of the Evangelicals and Catholics Together document back to 1994. J.I. Packer also was one of the signatories of that document. And R.C. found it very troubling because it set aside the differences on the doctrine of justification and did not discuss what R.C. saw as an absolutely essential distinction 
between the Reformation debate with the Roman Catholic Church on imputation. And so the Reformation side of things believes in the imputation of Christ's righteousness. So there's nothing I can do. There's there's nothing I can do to earn or merit God's acceptance of me. It is a righteousness that is alien from me that I must have, and that's Christ's righteousness, and that's the doctrine of imputation. It's an accounting term, the Latin word imputare, and it just means to put on one's account. And so my sin is imputed to Christ, and Christ's righteousness is imputed to me. The opposite view is infusion, and it sort of sees Christ's righteousness as infused in me. It sort of animates me, and now I can do good things and righteous deeds, and now I can be made righteous. R.C. saw that as a huge difference. And he also said, going back to what Luther said, this is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. And so R.C. took a strong stand against ECT because he saw the gospel at the center of that debate. Well, you can fast forward to the early zeros and we have the rise of the new perspective on Paul. And just to, you know, really quick summary, it the new perspective is a rejection of the Reformed and Reformation perspective. That's why it's called the new. And the old perspective is that of the Reformation. Well, once again, R.C. is saying the gospel is at stake here. The imputation is a biblical doctrine, and it's central to justification, and that's central to the gospel, and the gospel is central to the identity of the church. So, so what we see here is an emphasis that's consistent in R.C.'s life on the doctrine of justification by faith alone and the importance of it for the church. Yeah. And this was absolutely a doctrine that Christians needed to get right. Um, and, and understanding justification, it's central to a good theological education. You say like Luther and Calvin, R.C. was very passionate about theological education too. And in 2011, he founded Reformation Bible College and served as its first president. What legacy has R.C. left at this institution? Hmm. Yeah, I think about this every day. Um, first of all, uh, every time I hear R.C. is the first president, I feel like Paul with trembling knees uh, <laughs> being the second president. But yeah, feel the weight of this. I, um, one is he, he started a Bible college because he believed that grounding students in the word of God is the, the most, uh, that timeless education is the most timely education for whatever they do in life whether they go into ministry or go into whatever vocation God has for them. So first and foremost, we hold that here with a, with a strong fidelity, that commitment to the authority, reliability of the Word of God. It's the center of what we do. But there's also a sense in which R.C. was about communication. In fact, I think at the end of the day, he was a communicator. He was a teacher. And he, he saw the, the power of these truths, but he also labored with an obligation to tell, for the truth to be well told, for it to be told with persuasion and with power. Um, 
And so, you know, we try to do that here too. Uh, we're not just about educating students. We want articulate students who are engaging and and can tell the truth well and uh, rep- and proclaim uh, the truth with a power and an efficacy. So I always I always think about that with with RC and what he was about. That we're trying to do that here um, and continue. Uh, to try to do that here, because the church needs that. Uh, the church needs to not just be reminded of these truths, but to be reminded of these truths in a way that stirs up within us passion for these truths and conviction on these truths, because we're just moving into more and more troubling moments culturally, uh, where these convictions are going to be ostracized and marginalized more and more. And there's going to be a tremendous urgency for the church to stand firm and for Christians to stand firm. And so uh, we hope to do that and humbly want to just put out uh, students uh, each year uh, that are able to do that. So that's, that's part of what we're trying to do here to carry on that vision. And, you know, even throughout his last days, it seemed like he was just as convictional about that that vision set forth at the school's inception um, as he was at the end of his life. Um, and a lot of us got, got to witness R.C. during his final years at conferences and such. And even as his health was fading, he seemed to maintain such a joyful disposition. You see him holding his red cup up on stage and laughing uh, tell us what RC was like to be around. How how was he as company? I I think he's the closest to Martin Luther I'll ever get. That's for <laughs> sure. He he had a larger than life personality. He had that Joker sized grin. He had a mischievous sense of humor. Uh, you always saw him as that sort of mischievous young boy was sort of inside him, even in his seventies. He struggled. Uh, he had had strokes. He had COPD that caused that pul- pul- pulmonary and breathing disorder that caused difficulty sleeping, um, which has all sorts of disruptions for his health. I don't think people realized how much of a struggle it was for him to just get up and speak for 30 minutes or 45 minutes. But he put on his game face and he got up there and did it. Um, and and he did it with such passion. You know, the, the other thing I think about RC was he really connected with people. I saw this uh, when people would come here and meet him, you know, and they, they'd come to Central Florida. We called them reformed tourists. You know, they come <laughs> for, to reformed Florida and they, they'd want to meet RC. And no matter who it was, he take the time to meet with them. He'd get to know them a little bit. He'd ask them questions about them. Um, He had a genuine love, concern, interest in people, but also translated when he spoke. Um, And I've seen it and I felt it when I've sat there in audiences, whether it was at St. Andrews on a Sunday morning or at a Ligonier conference, he could sort of look across the, the lectern or the podium and make you feel as if you're the only one uh, that he's talking to. He just had a real gift to connect with people and a passion for people and a passion for truth and a sense of humor that was, you know, he was the king of the one-liners 
and you never tried to keep up with him and you just sort of enjoyed it. Uh, <laughs> but he could turn on a dime. You know, he, he could tell a joke on one moment and then he could be reminded of some quote from Edwards or Machen and just have this sober and somber uh, comment at the next moment. Um, and so it was just a, it was a real joy, uh, truly a privilege to just be around him. But I think people who heard him speak sense that too. I, I think you could feel a friendship with R.C. And I heard, I've had many people tell me this. They never met him. But when he died, they felt like it was a friend who passed away. And uh, I think that was true of R.C. I heard uh, one Baptist pastor tell me that that R.C. was his favorite person to have dinner with, just for the sheer laughter, with the exception <laughs> of Al Mohler, right. if Al was in a good mood. <laughs> uh, you know, it, Dr. Nichols, it's been wonderful to hear from you about R.C., and I'm sure many are eager to read this new biography on a, on a great life. But before we wrap up, can you tell us maybe what writing projects you have lined up next? Oh, well, that was hard because this one was so much fun. <laughs> it sort of spoiled me. Uh, but but uh, I thought, okay, let's go for Augustine. Uh, so I'm working on a biography right now on Augustine and just calling it Augustine, a life. So um Right now, I'm somewhere in Milan in the 380s, uh, so it's kind of fun uh, working that on that. That sounds like a great project, and maybe we can have you back then to speak about that book when it's out. Great. Oh, I'd be glad to. This was well, fun. Well, for now, thank Dr. Nichols, thank you so much for writing this book, uh, R.C. Sproul, A Life. It's out with Crossway um, this March, um, and thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Oh, my pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. And, and thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network.